every year about this time, the President of the United States delivers his sort of State of the Union address to Congress. And, and we as well here at Four Oaks, usually around this time, take a Sunday to talk about all things Four Oaks and how we feel as elders and pastors, God might be leading us and directing us in the days ahead into 2023. So we're hitting pause on Matthew just for this week, and instead I'm going to invite you to open your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 1. Now, if, I, if I'm looking a little casual today, let me, let me try to explain this. When we, our family goes to Disney World, we wear mouse ears. When we go to FSU game, we wear Tennessee colors. No, we wear garnet and gold. <laughs> And to say to the church, you got to wear the Four Oaks swag, or as my wife, lovely wife Susan said before the first service, go Four Oaks, right? So if you want some of this awesome looking merch, you can stop by the hub on the way out today. Uh, we're selling shirts, sweatshirts, and a variety of colors. Go see Joe Godfrey. Now, let me say this as we get going this morning. I have to be brutally honest and say I'm not entirely comfortable with this sort of state of the church language, and, and let me tell you why. I'm pretty sure, maybe there's, maybe there's an exception, you historians can tell me, tell me otherwise. I'm pretty sure, though, there's never been a president who's gotten in front of the nation and declared that the state of the nation is bad, right, is, is terrible. No, 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 no president in that kind of context tells exactly all the truth. The state of, we, we know what the State of the Union is. It's for the executive in chief to kind of lay out his or her agenda, uh, sort of put their spin on what's happening, and above all else, above all else, blame the other party for all the bad things that are happening, right? We, we know how this goes. So when I think about doing a quote-unquote State of the Church address or to talk about how the church is doing, I'll be honest, it seems a little presumptuous for me, to take on that mantle and sort of issue an assessment, right? Like, like, based upon what? On a scale of 1 to 10, which area of ministries, which part of our vision and mission. But let's be honest, as we see in Revelation chapter 7, where Jesus speaks to the seven churches, there is only one person's opinion of the church that matters, and that is Jesus, and we know that one day we will have to give account to him, both as, as leaders, elders, shepherds, as parishioners, as those who, who serve in the body of Christ, we'll all have to give an account for our stewardship and how we've stewarded the resources that, that he's given us. So, so state of the church doesn't sound quite right, but neither does something like a vision Sunday. And, and not because I don't believe in vision, and I do, and we're going to talk a little bit about that, but so oftentimes, again, let's be honest, Vision Sunday can be sort of this launch pad for leaders to announce all the new cutting-edge stuff they would want to do. You know, all under the guise, of course, of no one's done it this way before, or we're going to finally do it better than anyone else. Uh, we're going we're to revolutionize ministry. We're going to change the world. And let's be honest, no, you're not, right? That's just a, sometimes that's a little bit of pastoral hyperbole. So if it's not vision of the church, it's not say of the church, I have kind of landed on a phrase that I think is appropriate for us, and this would be the mission of the church. And the reason I like that a little bit better is because Jesus makes it crystal clear to us as a church family, us as believers, us and our families, what we are to be all about as a church. It could not be any clearer. In fact, 
when we get to the end of Matthew, Matthew 28, probably seven, eight years from now, we'll, we'll read this passage, all right? Not, not quite that long. I'm going to read it. It's so familiar. Some of you know it by heart. You learned it in your campus ministry. You've used it sharing your faith, but, but l- let's read it again. And just, just, listen, just listen to the clarity. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. It couldn't be any clearer, right? The church of Jesus Christ is called to make disciples. And by the church, we don't mean some abstract entity in a smoke-filled boardroom. We don't smoke. But you get what I'm saying. It's, it's, it's all of our charge and responsibility to make disciples, which means sharing the gospel, incorporating people into the church, teaching them God's word and how to obey, sending them back out to live lives on mission, not just the professional missionaries, but all of us in whatever sphere of life God has called us. It's a very clear mission. Now, let me say this, how we're to do that and what aspects of this mission to emphasize in any particular season, that's of course where vision comes in. And then your pastors and elders um, from the three Four Oaks congregations, East, Midtown, and Killarne, went off this past weekend and did some of this some of this considering and praying, and I really want to sort of unfold a little bit of that to you, where by the Spirit's wisdom, how we are to sort of emphasize, run after, walk out this mission for the coming season. And I think there is a, there's an aspect to this, and we understand we can't just pick apart this mission. It all kind of comes together. But if I was going to say there's one particular thing that we find in Matthew 28 that I think is particularly relevant, not just for Four Oaks Church, but for the global church, the evangelical church. It's that phrase we see in verse 20, teaching them to obey everything. And here, here's why I think that part of the, of, the, of the Great Commission, our mission, is particularly relevant for us. I believe the greatest threat to the witness and vitality of the church is not secular culture per se. I believe the greatest threat to the witness and vitality of the church is our confidence, or better yet, our lack of confidence in the very Word of God. You see, the church's trust, reliance, dependence, and obedience to the inspired, authoritative Word of God, let's be honest about this, that is seen as increasingly implausible in our current age. The idea that God's Word could speak authoritatively over and above culture, over and above ethnicity, over and above socioeconomic status, over and above race, over and above politics, let's be honest, at best, that's quaint. That's very traditional, Pastor Paul. That's a nice, that's a nice sentiment. But, well, you know, 
Thank you, Pastor Paul. That's a real nice declaration. Welcome to the present. We're running a real nation here, right? But at worst, that's foolish. At worst, that's dangerous. At worst, that's a, a threat to the common good that must be exterminated at all costs. And for us, I don't think there's ever been a more pressing task. Is your confidence in the sufficiency of this word? Do you believe it? Do you embrace it? Do you trust it? Even when it speaks sometimes in direct opposition to the spirit of the age. It's one thing to espouse theologically, confessionally, sola scriptura, that the word of God is the supreme authority over all of life. It's quite another when you're in the workplace or talking to your neighbor or watching the evening news or surfing your favorite website or posting on social media to remember, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word which proceeds from the mouth of God. And I believe 2 Peter chapter 1 speaks to this issue. So that's where we're going to be this morning, 2 Peter 1, verses 12 through 21. If you can, I'm going to invite you to stand as we read God's Word. And if you see me with my Bible up like this, okay, um, I'm at that age, and I left my big print Reader's Digest version Bible at home, and I'm going to have to read the normal Word of God a little closer to my face. So here we go, 2 Peter 1, beginning of verse 12. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder. Since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the dawn... Day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of men or man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we live in an age where it's difficult to trust that, what we just read. Intellectually, we, we might believe it. Theologically, we might affirm it. But we need you to drill that deep down into our hearts, that we would actually believe that when it comes to our kids or our marriage or our job or our ethics or the way we conduct ourselves or the choices we make with sexuality. Lord, we really pray that your word would have its way 
in our hearts this morning. In your name that we pray. Amen. Please take your seats. Um, Verse 12 through 14 really tell you Peter's heart for you and me and for the people he's writing to in this letter. He is issuing a call for the people of God to remember. Now, I want you to notice the number of times in these first few verses he uses some form of this idea of of remembering. Look at verse 12. I always intend to remind you, verse 13, I think it's right to stir you up by way of reminder. Verse 15, you may be able at any time to recall these things. Look at verse 19, to which you will do well to pay attention. Now, if you flip over, we're going to look at these in a second. In in chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, Peter says again, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. Verse 2, you should remember. Do you get the idea? It's like, hello, dummy. Here, not you, but you know, hello, dummy. We're, this is is the main point. I can't make it any clearer. I can only write it across my forehead and like look right at you. The question is, what is Peter wanting them to remember? And why is he wanting them to remember it? And then, and then lastly, you know, what does that have to do with us? So, so, so two things I want to do this morning. The first part of this message, I want to talk about the theology of reminding. I want to try to unpack and exposit this text and try to understand and dig into what Peter's talking about here. And then two, after we do the theology of reminding, I want to talk about the ministry of reminding. And these would be things... As a, church, as a church leadership, we want to set before you to say, this is how, these are, some, these are some resources, these are some means of grace God has given you to run after as we try to operationalize what Peter is talking about here. It's, a, it's kind of a track for us personally and corporately as we, as we dig into the new year. So that's where we're going to go this morning. So first of all, let's talk about the theology of reminding. This is big time on Peter's heart. Verse 14 tells us he's at the tail end of his ministry. It's time for him to go home and be with the Lord. He says that the Lord has revealed this to him. We're not sure how this happened. Maybe he's referring back to John 21, where Jesus um, told Peter he was going to be martyred one day. Maybe Jesus appeared in a vision. This happened a couple other times in Peter's life. We're not sure, but Peter is convinced in church history confirms this, his death and departure are imminent. Peter, chief of the original apostles. And what is he going to tell them? Peter says, as I am on the way out, here is my central charge to you. I want you to remember. Remember what? Look at verse 12. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. Now, when he talks about the truth that they have been established in, that they have, he's referring to the truth, of course, of the gospel, of the revelation of Jesus Christ. But Peter notes that this revelation, while it has one source, that's God, which is always the correct answer in church, it's God, it has 
two sets of messengers. In other words, other words, this truth from God has been brought to God's people through two sets of messengers. The first are the Old Testament prophets, and the second are the New Testament apostles. So look at verses 19 and 20, where Peter says the prophetic word was the Old Testament, is the Old Testament. And understand, it, he says it's here, it's not just the Bible of the Jews. See, we as Christians can oftentimes sort of have that thing like, it's, it's the New Testament that's most important. Now, the New Testament is most important in, in a certain kind of way, but understand the Old Testament was the Bible of the church, of the early church. They did not, they did not have the New Testament. What they had was the authoritative Word of God delivered through the Old Testament prophets. And when they read the Old Testament, they believed by faith this is confirmed and fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Everything that the Old Testament is talking about finds its fulfillment in Jesus. He is the one we have been waiting for, He is the long awaited Messiah. And when Peter says it was confirmed to them, what it means is that Peter says this is not some myth. This is not some sort of nursery rhyme, Poor Richard's Almanac, Aesop's Fables. We know this to be true because we were there. We were eyewitnesses. Now, I want you to think about this for a second. If you are Peter and you could draw from all of your stories about Jesus, which one would you pull from the holster? Everybody's got a crazy uncle in here, right? If you don't know who the crazy uncle is, <laughs> you're the crazy uncle. But everybody's got a crazy uncle that's got a, that's got a pile of stories that they pull out periodically. Now, Peter is no ordinary dude. I mean, think about the miracles, think about the death, the resurrection, the ministry of Jesus. Of all the things that he could talk about, interestingly, he pulls out of his holster this story we find in the Gospels famously called the Transfiguration. This is where they go up to the top of the mountain with Jesus, and they see all kinds of extraordinary things. So, so I want you to think about this for a second. When the pastors and elders went off, we went off on a retreat this weekend, I came back, and Susan asked me, okay, what, what did you guys do on your proverbial mountaintop? We were actually, I think, below sea level. But, but nonetheless, we, we were not on a mountain. But how did it go? And I said, well, it was great. We had a bonfire, and we worshiped, and we prayed, and teaching, and discussion. Well, Peter, James, and John all went to have a retreat with Jesus. They went to the mountaintop. And you can imagine years later, Peter, what did you guys do up there? What did you talk about? What happened? Well, if you know the story, you know, well, you hear Peter saying, well, the first thing is, we saw Jesus in his glorified state, in all his glory. Then we saw Jesus having a conversation with Elijah and Moses, who had been dead some thousands of years. And then finally, the voice of God showed up and said, this is my son, in him I am well pleased, do what he says. Peter says, had quite the story, and he says, but it's not fiction, we were there. We saw and beheld his glory. And it was to Peter, James, John, the other apostles, plus Paul, plus Jesus's brothers, James and Jude, that Jesus entrusted the leadership of the church. It was their job to speak on behalf of Jesus. 
It was their job to speak authoritative truth through their letters. But here was the problem, and this is not an insignificant problem. The apostles were not immortal, right? They weren't superheroes. They died. And as they begin to die off one by one, and this was something that they were all very cognizant of, the, the question was, who's going to lead the church? But even more importantly than that, who's going to speak for Jesus? How would the church be led and moved governing forward? Now, let me just tell you, that's not an abstract theological question. You and I have to ask that every single day in our spiritual lives. Is truth a social construct? Is truth simply a product of a consensus of what a group of people say at any particular point in time at that moment in history? Is truth this fluid reality? Because most certainly, that is the spirit of the age. Most certainly, that is the, 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 the framework of authority where there's ultimately no authority that's higher than the self. But Peter says, it is not so with the people of God. Peter says, and this is an interesting thing to say because he's about to die he says, I intend always to remind you, how, how is that going to happen? <laughs> Peter, you're, you're dead. How are you going to continue to remind us? Look at verse 14. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. How? Look at 2 Peter 3, 1 through 2. This is now the second letter that I am writing you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord Jesus, Lord and Savior, through your apostles. Guys, you could not have a clearer statement of the sufficiency and authority of Scripture than that. Peter says, you are not left to wander aimlessly in the night. Truth is not a moving target. You are going to have the Old Testament, which was given to the prophets, and, interestingly, you're going to have our letters. Did you get that? Peter says, when I'm gone, you're to pull out my letters, and you're to read them. And you're not saying at that moment, what would Peter do? What you're saying is, what is the Lord telling us to do through his servant, Peter? You see, these, these, these were letters that were not meant to be read one time and disregarded. It's like when, you would, when I was in camp in elementary school, to get a letter from your parents was the most embarrassing thing that could ever happen, right? Okay. Like, and they would call your name. And you'd have to make the walk of shame up to the front of the dining hall. And everybody's like, his mommy's looking after him and all that sort of stuff. And so what you would do, and thank goodness my mom's with the Lord so she doesn't know this, we would throw those letters immediately away, right? That's just what we did to maintain our, our, our coolness. Not so with the letters of God. They were meant to be poured over, studied, meditated upon, 
preserved, and that's exactly what we have in the New Testament. Susan and I would um, house sit, kids sit when we were in seminary, and um, she was a teacher. She knew what she was doing. I, I was just a clueless seminary student. I had no idea what I was doing. But these helicopter parents would, as they were getting ready to go out the door for the weekend to entrust their kids to us, and if they really realized how clueless we were, they never would have done this, right? But they would always give us this encyclopedia worth of information. It was kind of our resource book to know what to do in every, each and every circumstance, this is their bedtime routines. This is, what, this is what they eat. This is what time they go to school. This is what they wear. Now, conveniently, one of these families forgot the section about what do you do when all three kids poop and vomit all at the same time, simultaneously. I didn't have to look in the, the, the encyclopedia for that. You throw everything away. Yeah, you, you put it in a bag, you put it in the dumpster, and you don't tell anybody, right? Not so with Peter's letters, right? They were meant to be kept, in verse 20, now here, this is, this is the most important thing, I think. It tells us why. We all have books and things that we keep around, but what makes the Bible unique? And what verse 20 tells us is that it is the very word of God. Listen to verse 20. No prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. You could also say imagination. No prophecy of Scripture originates in man. That's what Peter's saying. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now, that word carry along, back in the 70s and 80s, we, it was a fun thing to do to make paper airplanes. And we would get little manuals for Christmas to tell us how to make the best paper airplane. That doesn't happen now. Now kids get drones for Christmas. Have you noticed this, right? So, but, but it was always the, 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 the chief thing. How can we make this airplane fly? It has to be shaped this way and this way. But the one thing that was a non-negotiable to make that airplane fly, you had to have some air. You had to have some wind. You had to have some... Some, some, some kind of breath of current, right? And that's the same idea, word here, that we need to understand that, that the scriptures, were, were, they, they were not dictated. These were written by real men with real personalities, real temperaments, real educations, real vocabulary levels, real experiences, okay? So we don't want to take out the human side of this. But what they wrote did not have their origin in them. What they wrote had their origin with God, and God carried them along, bore them up with his Holy Spirit. That's why we can say with confidence, this, in fact, are the very words of God, inspired by him, as Paul tells us in 2 Timothy 3.16, breathed out by God and are useful for teaching, reproof, correcting, and training in righteousness. That, I believe, is the fundamental crisis of the church. Do we believe that? Do we believe it with our kids? Do we believe it with our choices, with our sexuality? Do, do, we, do we trust what God says, even when it seems totally, completely implausible? to the spirit of the age and the cultural air that we 
breathe? I believe that's the chief task. But the question is, how do we get this, this book, in here and in here? And so I want to spend these last minutes that we have switching from the theology of reminding to the ministry of reminding. And, and here, I want to mention five, six, seven things that, that, that we as a church body leaders are commending to you. Not all of them will apply to all of you in the same way. But this is a course of, of action that I would commend to you some advantages, some resources to take advantage of in this season that can help you do just what Peter is talking about, to be reminded, to be stirred up. And let, let, let me mention a few over here. For, um, first of all, we are, I've just had a con- growing conviction about this, we're, we're rebooting the pastoral devotionals that we have been doing over the past few years. So just so you kind of have a, gen- a, a, a context for this, back in March of 2020, which is the year that shall not be named. But back in March of 2020, the world shut down. We couldn't meet. We couldn't do anything. How do we get the Word of God out to the people of God? So I started this little, little Bible study every weekday morning. Spent 10, 15 minutes just going through books of the Bible and unpacking it and talking it and pontificating and those sorts of things. But once we began gathering again, we kept on doing it because there seemed to be traction around this idea of starting our day with uh, a portion of Scripture led and taught by uh, a pastor. So we got to this past Thanksgiving. I just decided we, we, we needed a break. And by we, I mean I needed a break, right? But, but here's, here's, my, here's been my growing conviction. A lot of times we can be sort of consumers of God's Word. And heaven knows there are so many resources out there, podcasts, you can watch any sermon in the world virtually online instantaneously. There's books, there's resources. But so oftentimes this, this becomes a, a one-way street and we haven't learned to become self-feeders, self-studiers. The Word of God hasn't been imbibed into our souls by our own study of the Word. And so what we're going to be doing, doing a little different format this year, this next go-around. Instead of preaching the sermon, and then spending the next week digesting it, and here's the applications and the theological points. We're going to kind of do it in reverse, that the five weekday mornings leading up to the sermon are all going to be preparation for that Sunday's message. And I want to sort of walk you through what I do when I study a passage of God's Word. How do you study it? How do you pull out the meaning, the context? And I hope that it will be much more than simply getting your little devotional fill that morning, although I think there's that part of it. But more than that, it will really be help equip you to study the Word of God better for yourself. And so that, that's something I, I commend to you. A lot of you have taken advantage of that over the, the, the years. Um, it's, we, we run it live um, through our live stream, but we also post it. You can access it on all our platforms over the course of the year. We'd, we'd love to have you join us. We're going to start those tomorrow at 8 a.m. Second thing I would commend to you is have a systematic way of reading through the Bible this year. 
Um, I, I, um, I, I know there's some of you who are so faithful already in doing this, and I'm going to embarrass her. And so, so Joanne Smidley has been leading a group of ladies le- reading through the, I think it's the Chronological Bible, right, Joanne? And so if, if you're a lady and you want to jo- jump on that train, go talk to, to Joanne when this is over. There's some of you who are faithfully doing this, but I remember last year I'd issued a call, the similar call, read through the Bible this year, and I commended a Bible study plan to you. And, and it was interesting, right towards the end of the year, one of y'all texted me, and it was a picture of you and your husband, and y'all were holding up the Bible reading plan and saying, we did it. Thank you so much for encouraging us to do this. We read through the Bible in a year. And, and I felt two things at once. One was just immense excitement, pr- proud of them. The second was shame, because I had forgotten that I had issued the call, okay? And I'm just keeping it real here as, as your pastor, that I am not a disciplined guy. I go in spurts. This is, the, this is the pattern in all of my life. But I'm keeping it for reals here this year. I want to do this with you. I want you to ask me about it. I'm going to ask you. Now, if you ask me about it, I'm going to ask you about it, right? Okay, so that, that, that's the deal. And there's a, there's a Bible uh, plan that I would commend to you. There's a lot out there. This is just one that, when I've done it, it's worked for me. It's the Discipleship Journal Bible Reading Plan. It takes four passages of Scripture a day, one from the Gospels, one from the Epistles, one from the Old Testament, one from the wisdom literature. And you do it five days a week, which I love, because when you miss a day, which invariably happens, it's not like you fall so far behind. That can be one of the most frustrating things, right? I'm so far behind. It's already January 22nd. Pastor, I'm just going to wait again until next January to try this again. Don't do that. Don't wait till next January. Pick up one of those discipleship journal Bible reading plans. They're right at the hub. We'll post them online and start, to, start tomorrow, January 23rd. And use this as your new year that when we come back, to do this state of the church thing next year, which we're not calling the state of the church, the mission of the church. You get what I'm saying? We can ask each other, how did it go? And if you committed to do it and you didn't do it, and I didn't do it, then it's too bad for us. We're out of here. No, that's not what happens, okay? There's grace and mercy and all those things, but come on, guys, we need to be accountable, right? Uh, Walt Disney famously said, what, you know, everybody needs a deadline. Everybody does. And so I want to commit, that, commit to that with you this year. A third thing, and this was mentioned, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but it was mentioned in the announcements, because we have some amazing men's and women's Bible studies going on. We have a women's brunch coming up where we are going to launch out, you women, your study for the spring, which is going to be through the book of Ephesians. And starting in February, there's going to be uh, a Tuesday night Bible study and a Wednesday morning Bible study. They're the same study, taught by the same people. They're, they're designed that if you work as a woman then, and if you can't get, be here in the mornings, you've, you've got a Bible study slot then. But if you can be here on Wednesday morning, we have childcare available. But this is much more than just simply teaching. It is teaching, but it's also small groups around tables, praying for one another, applying the Word of God and that is going to be starting up um, in February. Come to the Women's Brunch, ladies, this um, in a couple of weeks. Or I think it's this Saturday, right? Yeah, this Saturday. And hear more about this. Um, what an awesome opportunity to study, all study the same book of the Bible together, the, Word of God, uh, the book of Ephesians. Men, let me just tell you that, that 
Um, I, I like to call our men's studies like old faithful, right? That's the geyser in Yellowstone, where it doesn't matter what time, time of the year, it's just or what day you go, it's always on schedule. And for years, and now I can honestly say decades, when you come up here on a Friday morning, there are men studying the Word of God. Men, I know that some of you, it's a big step to go to a community group when you don't know anybody. I just want you to know, as a fellow man, I get it. There is no... But our, our Bible, it's, it's another thing entirely to come into a group of men, humble guys who are just drinking coffee and studying the Word of God, and you can be a fly on a wall and just listen and study. And I commend those studies to you. You can find all of this stuff on the Hub. All right. Those are three personal things. Let me mention three things that I think are more corporate in nature that I want you to be aware of, that I think fit into this theme of stirring ourselves up and deepening ourselves in the Word of God. And the first is this. We are um, hosting our second annual, now when you do it two years in a row, you can call it annual, right? Second annual Theology and Practice Weekend. Last year, we hosted Greg Allison, Southern Seminary Prof., he came and spoke on Roman Catholicism and justification by faith, and it ran concurrent with our Roman series. This year, we're inviting Dr. Scott Swain, who's the president of Reformed Theological Seminary in Orlando, to come and teach on the Trinity. And, and we have a nifty little tagline, Getting God Right, Trinitarian History, Heresy, and Hope. This is a, a Saturday morning little conference, mini conference seminar. We provide childcare, we provide food. This is an opportunity to come and really drill deep into the Word of God. Now, let me say this. Well, I think we ought to be doing these kind of things. And this is, by the way, going to be a joint venture of all three Four Oaks congregations. We're going to be hosting it right here. The reason this kind of thing is important is that most of us don't have much trouble gravitating to really super-duper practical resources. How to be a better parent, how to be a better husband, how to be a better father and a mother and a church member, and how to use your gifts. And, and guys, those are all important, but let's be honest, a lot of times we, we're just a little OD'd on all that. It's like the youth pastor who only teaches on dating. It's like, it's relevant, but we get it, right? Well, I think in the same way, there is something really important about the people of God dedicating themselves to a subject matter, a theological study matter, study matter. And I don't think there's anything more important than the doctrine of the knowledge of God. I want you to think about this. Somebody at our retreat mentioned this this weekend. But when you go to encourage someone or compliment someone, or someone encourages or compliments you, which, which encouragements or compliments mean the most to you? I mean, certainly if somebody says, hey, that, that's a great job, or you're such a great guy, or we really appreciate all the hard work, that, that, that's good. But how much more meaningful is it when you tell someone or someone tells you, you know, when our family had COVID and you came and brought meals to us and left them out on our doorstep for two weeks, that was just incredibly amazing. Thank you for serving us in that way. When my mother passed, you came and prayed with us and brought the community group around. And I mean, that, that has a ton of meaning, doesn't it? How, why would it be any different with God? When we come to God thanking him 
for who he is and what he has done, we want to be specific. That's what brings meaning. That's what moves a generic knowledge of God to a deep, personal, intimate knowledge of God. And to say all that to say, I really hope you are more grounded in your faith and theology of who God is by coming to this theology and practice conference. So there it is. That's, it's Saturday, February 4th. Okay, second thing. We're coming down the home stretch here. I want to talk about something that um, God's been doing sort of behind the scenes, but which is going to be much more public in the coming days. Um, and that has to do with our past opportunity to host a pastoral resident at each of our three congregations. Let me give you a little backdrop. When we, think, when we were with, with, with our elder teams this past uh, weekend, and we were just contemplating and thinking about what God has done, particularly over these last 10 years, of how God has birthed two additional congregations and how we have sent out elders and pastors and core group members and helped to plant churches and been a part of the Harbor Residency that, I mean, that was just a moment of real celebration for us. And let me just tell you, four oaks, so much of that relates to you. That when we moved as one church into this building in 2010, we came with a stated goal. We did not want to be gospel settlers. We did not want to be simply one more church on the northeast side of Tallahassee that's facing inward, that caters to its own needs, oblivious to everything going on around. We wanted to be gospel pioneers. We wanted to spread the gospel across Tallahassee, across this region, and wherever else he gave us opportunity. And so for us, multiplication was a huge value. And I just want you to know, Forrest Clark, because I think our congregation has uniquely borne that. Has unique Because multiplication is awesome for the people who are going, right? <laughs> for the people who are men in the home front, it can be hard. It can be tough. That's resources. That's people. That's leaders. But I think God is blessing it. And one of the things I think God is bringing back to us is a grant that our three congregations have been recently awarded by an organization called Made to Flourish. Made to Flourish is a, is a pastoral organization that does, does a lot of things, but one of the things it does, it funds full-time pastoral residencies. In other words, for, for, for men who are graduating from seminary, who have a call to ministry, who've been trained, but are still, let's just call it a little green, okay? Not gangrene, but a little green, and they are thinking through what their call is, and, and maybe they're not quite ready to, to move into a position of leading a church or planning a church, but what they really need is a season as part of a pastoral team, a season of part of a healthy church like this one to love on them and care for them while they also function as a pastor and resident for a two-year period, and then we send them off. And one of the great things about that opportunity is that we are making an investment in them, and they are making an investment in us. They are going to be fully functioning pastoral team members for those two years, preaching and teaching, doing, a whole, doing all the pastor stuff. But it gives us an opportunity, right, to have a stake in, in, in sending men out of gospel propagation, of seeing God's word go forth. And so just a couple things you can pray for us. It's our goal to have this person on board for each of the congregations by July of 2023, which is our new fiscal ministry year. Um, this means this season is going to be one of recruiting and interviewing and 
doing all those sorts of things. And we just we want to we want to just keep that vision in front of us and and say what what a golden opportunity because made to flourish by the way is fully funding financially all of those residencies to the tune of about $350,000 over a 5-year period. And when we look at that we just say that is the blessing of God that is a great stewardship and I hope that that's as encouraging to you as it is to me. Last thing, last little area we want to talk about I want to talk about what happens here on a, on a Sunday. Because we are, one of the reasons we preach through books of the Bible versus what I would call topical preaching, which means we kind of choose topics randomly or semi-randomly from Scripture, is that if that's the way, if that was the, the consistent digest of, of teaching you received, what you're going to hear are things that I'm most comfortable with, Right? things that are in my wheelhouse, things that I've talked about before, things that I'm quote-unquote good at, you're not going to hear instinctively about the things that I struggle with that are hard, that are, that are complicated, that are controversial. But when we preach through books of the Bible, we really can't get around those areas, can we? And, and, and our practice for the history of the churches has been the point of the sermon is the point of the passage, that's, and we commit to preaching through books because that's the way that we make sure we're preaching the whole counsel of God. And so we are just starting this journey through the, the, the book of Matthew. And let me encourage you to do something. We are in about six or eight weeks are going to come to the most famous sermon ever preached. And so if somebody ever asks you, who's your favorite preacher? Who's the best preacher you've ever encountered? There's one correct answer. What is it? Jesus, yeah, congratulations. Or, or John Piper, I can't remember which one, but one of those, okay. He would not like that if he were here. Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount, the most famous passage uh, sermon ever preached. And I'm gonna, we're going to be spending a number of weeks, obviously, in that amazing um, three chapters, Matthew 5 through 7. I encourage you, even as you're reading at a high level the Word of God, reading it, you know, various portions of God's Word through the year, that you take this season to drill deep into a specific section. There's no better section to do that with than the Sermon on the Mount. There is a book that I'm, I'm recommending to you. It's one we gave all of our pastors and elders this past week. It's called The Sermon on the Mount and Human Flourishing by Jonathan Pennington. He's a, he's a pastor in our Harbor Network, but he's also a PhD at Southern Seminary, a professor there. This is the best book on the Sermon on the Mount that I've ever read, okay? Um, although there's many good ones. This, I think, is, is particularly good. We have it out on the resource table. I encourage you to, to, to buy one of those, pick one of those up, and begin to prepare your hearts for that season. Begin to really meditate and spend time, supplement this with the pastoral devotionals, okay? What a great combination to really help you, equip you to study the Word of God for yourself. The second book that I'm going to recommend to you, second resource, is one that the elders and pastors have been reading over this past year called The Lord's Supper, Understanding Four Views on the Lord's Supper. And one of the things that we have grown convicted of is that we, and by we I mean me, have not done the greatest job in teaching and preaching and, and communicating the depth 
of theology behind the Lord's Supper, why we do it weekly, why, why it's so important, what's happening here. Um, those of you who are from a liturgical background, um, where you did this every week growing up, it's not that, maybe not that strange, but maybe you don't even know why you did it or why we do it. Or maybe you're from more of a, a Bible church background and, and, and communion was only something that you did like once a quarter. And you come here and you're like, what are, what are you guys doing? Y'all are cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs doing this every Sunday. What, what's happening here? This is going to be a season where I want to more strategically, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, be communicating in an in-depth way why this is so vital why this is a means of God's grace for us, why the early church did this whenever they gathered, to remind ourselves, what is, what is happening? Is this just ritual? Is it just tradition? Or is this actually something Jesus commanded us to do? But if you want a sort of an inside side journey into some of the things that we've been wrestling with as elders and pastors, this is also a great book. And again, you can, you can check this out at the Resource Center. Last thing, I promise. And by last thing, I mean there's three more things, but I'm saying the last thing. No, they're, they're, this is truly the last thing. If you're here this morning and you're pretty new or pretty peripheral, and this is all just gook, and you're like, this is not what I signed up for. Thank you very much. I'm just, I'm just trying to get my feet wet. I'm trying to get acclimated. I don't know what's happening around here. I don't even know if this is really the church I'm going to plug into or if this is going to be my home church. Totally cool. We just don't want you to stay in that place. We want to help you find a body of believers to be a part of the family of God as the core center of your spiritual life. And one of the things that we do to help you in that is we host these things every so often called Welcome to the Family. The church is a family. It's the oikos. It's the household of faith. And we take a, a Saturday morning, and the next one we're doing is February 18th, and we give you um, food, we provide childcare. If you skip the sessions to go on a date, we won't even judge you all right, too harshly. But the whole point of that time is that you get to meet some pastors and elders and our staff. You hear about our heart, our vision, you meet some other new people, you hear about our theology, our statement of faith, you find out how to get more involved, how to plug in. There's no commitment. You know, we're not, we're not doing blood covenants in the middle of the welcome to the family time. That happens after the welcome to the family time. But there is no obligation. But it's a wonderful opportunity. I can genuinely say with a clear conscience, not, not pastor speak, it's one, of the, it's one of my favorite things that I get to do. Because it's an opportunity to get to know you guys in a whole new way. And of course, this idea that the church is the family of God that's something I want to highlight for you this morning as we prepare our hearts to come to the table. We believe and we think the scriptures teach that this is a family meal. And when, you, when we think, when you think about the times when you've had family meals together, all around that table, the ones where you weren't fighting, but the other ones, okay? And, and you're sharing as a family, you're talking as a family, you're your highs, your lows, what's happened, what's going on. I mean, that's part of a healthy family, right? Well, that's what we do when we come to the table. We're, we're, we're signifying we are one family, the family of God. And we need each other. 
And I am publicly identifying myself as being on Team Jesus. And Team Jesus is open to anyone who simply confesses their sin and acknowledges their need and trusts in Jesus. This is not an exclusive club. It's wide open, but it is a family. And I really, as you're thinking about all the things that we talked about this last 45 minutes, meditate, pray, and consider how is God leading you to deepen yourself in the family of God and in the Word of God. So bow your heads. And as you're doing that, I'm going to ask our leaders to come and to prepare to serve the Lord's Supper.
a, there's an aspect to this, and we understand we can't just pick apart this mission. It all kind of comes together. But if I was going to say there's one particular thing that we find in Matthew 28 that I think is particularly relevant, not just for Four Oaks Church, but for the global church, the evangelical church, it's that phrase we see in verse 20, teaching them to obey everything. And here, here's why I think that part of the, of, the, of the Great Commission, our mission, is particularly relevant for us. I believe the greatest threat to the witness and vitality of the church is not secular culture per se. I believe the greatest threat to the witness and vitality of the church is our confidence, or better yet, our lack of confidence in the very Word of God. You see, the church's trust, reliance, dependence, and obedience to the inspired, authoritative Word of God, let's be honest about this, that is seen as increasingly implausible in our current age. The idea that God's Word could speak authoritatively over and above culture, over and above ethnicity, over and above socioeconomic status, over and above race, over and above politics, let's be honest, at best, that's quaint. That's very traditional, Pastor Paul. That's a nice, that's a nice sentiment. But, well, you know, thank you, Pastor Paul. That's a real nice declaration. Welcome to the present. We're running a real nation here, right? But at worst, that's foolish. At worst, that's dangerous. At worst, that's a, a threat to the common good that must be exterminated at all costs. And for us, I don't think there's ever been a more pressing task. Is your confidence in the sufficiency of this word? Do you believe it? Do you embrace it? Do you trust it? Even when it speaks sometimes in direct opposition to the spirit of the age. It's one thing to espouse theologically, confessionally, sola scriptura, that the word of God is the supreme authority over all of life. It's quite another when you're in the workplace or talking to your neighbor or watching the evening news or surfing your favorite website or posting on social media to remember, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word which proceeds from the mouth of God. And I believe 2 Peter chapter 1 speaks to this issue. So that's where we're going to be this morning, 2 Peter 1, verses 12 through 21. If you can, I'm going to invite you to stand as we read God's Word. And if you see me with my Bible up like this, okay, um, I'm at that age, and I left my big print Reader's Digest version Bible at home, and I'm going to have to read the normal Word of God a little closer to my face. So here we go, 2 Peter 1, beginning of verse 12. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder. Since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. 
And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the dawn, day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of men or man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we live in an age where it's difficult to trust that, what we just read. Intellectually, we, we might believe it. Theologically, we might affirm it. But we need you to drill that deep down into our hearts, that we would actually believe that when it comes to our kids or our marriage or our job or our ethics or the way we conduct ourselves or the choices we make with sexuality. Lord, we really pray that your word would have its way in our hearts this morning. In your name that we pray, amen. Please take your seats. Um, Verse 12 through 14 really tell you Peter's heart for you and me and for the people he's writing to in this letter. He is issuing a call for the people of God to remember. Now, I want you to notice the number of times in these first few verses he uses some form of this idea of of remembering. Look at verse 12. I always intend to remind you, verse 13, I think it's right to stir you up by way of reminder. Verse 15, you may be able at any time to recall these things. Look at verse 19, to which you will do well to pay attention Now, if you flip over, we're going to look at these in a second. In in chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, Peter says again, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. Verse 2, you should remember. Do you get the idea? It's like, hello, dummy. Here, not you. But, you know, hello, dummy. this This is the main point. I can't make it any clearer. I can only write it across my forehead and, like, look right at you. The question is, what is Peter wanting them to remember? And why is he wanting them to remember it? And then, and then lastly, you know, what does that have to do with us? So, so, so two things I want to do this morning. First part of this message, I want to talk about the theology of reminding. I want to try to unpack and exposit this text and try to understand and dig into what Peter's talking about here. And then two, after we do the theology of reminding, I wanted to talk about the ministry of reminding. And these would be things, as a church, as a church leadership, we want to set before you to say, this is how, these are, some, these are some resources, these are some means of grace God has given you 
to run after as we try to operationalize what Peter is talking about here. It's, a, it's kind of a track for us personally and corporately as we, as we dig into the new year. So that's where we're going to go this morning. So first of all, let's talk about the theology of reminding. This is big time on Peter's heart. Verse 14 tells us he's at the tail end of his ministry. It's time for him to go home and be with the Lord. He says that the Lord has revealed this to him. We're not sure how this happened. Maybe he's referring back to John 21, where Jesus um, told Peter he was going to be martyred one day. Maybe Jesus appeared in a vision. This happened a couple other times in Peter's life. We're not sure, but Peter is convinced, and church history confirms this, his death and departure are imminent. Peter chief of the original apostles. And what is he going to tell them? Peter says, as I am on the way out, here is my central charge to you. I want you to remember. Remember what? Look at verse 12. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. Now, when he talks about the truth that they have been established in, that they have, he's referring to the truth, of course, of the gospel, of the revelation of Jesus Christ. But Peter notes that this revelation, while it has one source, that's God, which is always the correct answer in church, it's God, it has two sets of messengers. In other words, other words, this truth from God has been brought to God's people through two sets of messengers. The first are the Old Testament prophets, and the second are the New Testament apostles. So look at verses 19 and 20, where Peter says the prophetic word was the Old Testament, is the Old Testament. And understand, it, he says it's here, it's not just the Bible of the Jews, See, we as Christians can oftentimes sort of have that thing like it's, it's the New Testament that's most important. Now, the New Testament is most important in a certain kind of way, but understand the Old Testament was the Bible of the church, of the early church. They did not, they did not have the New Testament. What they had was the authoritative word of God delivered through the Old Testament prophets, and when they read the Old Testament, they believed by faith this is confirmed and fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Everything that the Old Testament is talking about finds its fulfillment in Jesus. He is the one we have been waiting for. He is the long-awaited Messiah. And when Peter says it was confirmed to them, what it means is that Peter says, this is not some myth. This is not some sort of nursery rhyme. Poor Richard's Almanac, Aesop's Fables. We know this to be true because we were there. We were eyewitnesses. Now, I want you to think about this for a second. If you are Peter, and you could draw from all of your stories about Jesus, which one would you pull from the holster? Everybody's got a crazy uncle in here, right? If you don't know who the crazy uncle is, <laughs> you're the crazy uncle. But everybody's got a crazy uncle, that's got, a, that's got a pile of stories that they pull out periodically. Now, Peter is no ordinary dude. I mean, think about the miracles, think about the death, the resurrection, the ministry of Jesus. Of all the things that he could talk about, interestingly, he pulls out of his holster 
this story we find in the Gospels famously called the Transfiguration. This is where they go up to the top of the mountain with Jesus, and they see all kinds of extraordinary things. So, so I want you to think about this for a second. When the pastors and elders went off, we went off on a retreat this weekend, I came back, and Susan asked me, okay, what, what did you guys do on your proverbial mountaintop? We were actually, I think, below sea level. But, but nonetheless, we, we were not on a mountain, but how did it go? And I said, well, it was great. You know, we had a bonfire, and we worshiped, and we prayed, and teaching, and discussion. Well, Peter, James, and John all went to have a retreat with Jesus. They went to the mountaintop, and you can imagine years later, Peter, what did you guys do up there? What did you talk about? What happened? Well, if you know the story, you know, well, you hear Peter saying, well, the first thing is we saw Jesus in his glorified state, in all his glory. Then we saw Jesus having a conversation with Elijah and Moses, who had been dead some thousands of years. And then finally, the voice of God showed up and said, this is my son, in him I am well pleased, do what he says. Peter says, had quite the story, and he says, but it's not fiction, we were there. We saw and beheld his glory. And it was to Peter, James, John, the other apostles, plus Paul, plus Jesus' brothers, James and Jude, that Jesus entrusted the leadership of the church. It was their job to speak on behalf of Jesus. It was their job to speak authoritative truth through their letters. But here was the problem, and this is not an insignificant problem. The apostles were not immortal, right? They weren't superheroes. They died, and as they begin to die off one by one, and this was something that they were all very cognizant of, the, the question was, who's going to lead the church? But even more importantly than that, who's going to speak for Jesus? How, how would the church be led and moved governing forward? Now, let me just tell you, that's not an abstract theological question. You and I have to ask that every single day in our spiritual lives. Is truth a social construct? Is truth simply a product of a consensus of what a group of people say at any particular point in time at that moment in history? Is truth this fluid reality? Because most certainly that is the spirit of the age. Most certainly that is the, 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 the framework of authority, where there's ultimately no authority that's higher than the self. But Peter says, it is not so with the people of God. Peter says, and this is an interesting thing to say, because he's about to die. He says, I intend always to remind you, how, how is that going to happen? Peter, you're, you're dead. How are you going to continue to remind us? Look at verse 14. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. How? Look at 2 Peter 3, 1 through 2. This is now the second letter that I am writing you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder 
that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord Jesus, Lord and Savior, through your apostles. Guys, you could not have a clearer statement of the sufficiency and authority of Scripture than that. Peter says, you are not left to wander aimlessly in the night. Truth is not a moving target. You are going to have the Old Testament, which was given to the prophets, and interestingly, you're going to have our letters. Did you get that? Peter says, when I'm gone, you're to pull out my letters and you're to read them. And you're not saying at that moment, what would Peter do? What you're saying is, what is the Lord telling us to do through his servant, Peter? You see, these, these, these were letters that were not meant to be read one time and disregarded. It's like when, you would, when I was in camp in elementary school, to get a letter from your parents was the most embarrassing thing that could ever happen, right? Okay. Like, and they would call your name. And you'd have to make the walk of shame up to the front of the dining hall. And everybody's like, his mommy's looking after him and all that sort of stuff. And so what you would do, and thank goodness my mom's with the Lord so she doesn't know this, we would throw those letters immediately away, right? That's just what we did to maintain our, our, our coolness. Not so with the letters of God. They were meant to be poured over, studied, meditated upon, preserved, and that's exactly what we have in the New Testament. Susan and I would um, house sit, kids sit when we were in seminary, and um, she was a teacher. She knew what she was doing. I, I was just a clueless seminary student. I had no idea what I was doing, but these helicopter parents would, as they were getting ready to go out the door for the weekend to entrust their kids to us, and if they really realized how clueless we were, they never would have done this, Right? But they would always give us this encyclopedia worth of information. It was kind of our resource book to know what to do in every, each and every circumstance. This is their bedtime routines. This is, what, this is what they eat. This is what time they go to school. This is what they wear. Now, conveniently, one of these families forgot the section about what do you do when all three kids poop and vomit all at the same time, simultaneously. I didn't have to look in the, the, the encyclopedia for that. You throw everything away. Yeah, you, you put it in a bag, you put it in the dumpster, and you don't tell anybody, right? Not so with Peter's letters, right? They were meant to be kept. In verse 20, now here, this, this is the most important thing, I think. It tells us why. We all have books and things that we keep around, but what makes the Bible unique? And what verse 20 tells us, is that it is the very word of God. Listen to verse 20. No prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. You could also say imagination. No prophecy of Scripture originates in man. That's what Peter's saying. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now that word carry along... Back in the 70s and 80s, we, it was a fun thing to do to make paper airplanes. And we would get little manuals for Christmas to tell us how to make the best paper airplane. That doesn't happen now. Now kids get drones for Christmas. Have you noticed this, right? So, but, but 
It was always the, 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 the chief thing, how can we make this airplane fly? It has to be shaped this way and this way. But the one thing that was a non-negotiable to make that airplane fly, you had to have some air. You had to have some wind. You had to have some, 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 some kind of breath of current, right? And that's the same idea word here, that we need to understand that, that the scriptures, were, were, they, they were not dictated these were written by real men with real personalities, real temperaments, real educations, real vocabulary levels, real experiences. Okay, so we don't want to take out the human side of this. But what they wrote did not have their origin in them. What they wrote had their origin with God. And God carried them along, bore them up with his Holy Spirit. That's why we can say with confidence, this, in fact, are the very words of God, inspired by him, as Paul tells us in 2 Timothy 3.16, breathed out by God and are useful for teaching, reproof, correcting, and training in righteousness. That, I believe, is the fundamental crisis of the church. Do we believe that? Do we believe it with our kids? Do we believe it with our choices, with our sexuality? Do, do, we, do we trust what God says, even when it seems totally, completely implausible to the spirit of the age and the cultural air that we breathe? I believe that's the chief task. But the question is, how do we get this, this book, in here and in here? And so I want to spend these last minutes that we have switching from the theology of reminding to the ministry of reminding. And, and here, I want to mention five, six, seven things that, that, that we as a church body leaders are commending to you. Not all of them will apply to all of you in the same way. But this is a course of, of action that I would commend to you some advantages, some resources to take advantage of in this season that can help you do just what Peter is talking about, to be reminded, to be stirred up. And let, let, let me mention a few over here. For, um, first of all, we are, I've just had a con growing conviction about this, we're, we're rebooting the pastoral devotionals that we have been doing over the past few years. So just so you kind of have a, 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 a context for this, back in March of 2020, which is the year that shall not be named. But back in March of 2020, the world shut down. We couldn't meet. We couldn't do anything. How do we get the Word of God out to the people of God? So I started this little, little Bible study every weekday morning. Spent 10, 15 minutes just going through books of the Bible and unpacking it and talking it and pontificating and those sorts of things. But once we began gathering again, we kept on doing it because there seemed to be traction around this idea of starting our day with uh, a portion of Scripture led and taught by uh, a pastor. So we got to this past Thanksgiving. I just decided we, we, we needed a break. And by we, I mean I needed a break, right? But, but here's, here's, my, here's been my growing conviction. A lot of times we can be sort of consumers of God's Word. And heaven knows there are so many resources out there, podcasts, you can watch any sermon in the world virtually online instantaneously. There's books, there's resources. 
But so oftentimes this, this becomes a, a, a one-way street and we haven't learned to become self-feeders, self-studiers. The Word of God hasn't been imbibed into our souls by our own study of the Word. And so what we're going to be doing, doing a little different format this year, this next go-around. Instead of preaching the sermon and then spending the next week digesting it, and here's the applications and the theological points, we're going to kind of do it in reverse, that the five weekday mornings leading up to the sermon are all going to be preparation for that Sunday's message. And I want to sort of walk you through what I do when I study a passage of God's Word. How do you study it? How do you pull out the meaning, the context? And I hope that it will be much more than simply getting your little devotional fill that morning, although I think there's that part of it. But more than that, it will really be help equip you to study the Word of God better for yourself. And so that, that's something I, I commend to you. A lot of you have taken advantage of that over the, the, the years. Um, it's, we, we run it live um, through our live stream, but we also post it. You can access it on all our platforms over the course of the year. We'd, we'd love to have you join us. We're going to start those tomorrow at 8 a.m. Second thing I would commend to you is have a systematic way of reading through the Bible this year. Um, I, I, um, I, I know there's some of you who are so faithful already in doing this, and I'm going to embarrass her. And so, so Joanne Smidley has been leading a group of ladies le- reading through the, I think it's the Chronological Bible, right, Joanne? And so if, if you're a lady and you want to jo- jump on that train, go talk to, to Joanne when this is over. There's some of you who are faithfully doing this, but I remember last year I'd issued a call, the similar call, read through the Bible this year, and I commended a Bible study plan to you. And, and it was interesting, right towards the end of the year, one of y'all texted me, and it was a picture of you and your husband, and y'all were holding up the Bible reading plan and saying, we did it. Thank you so much for encouraging us to do this. We read through the Bible in a year. And, and I felt two things at once. One was just immense excitement, pr- proud of them. The second was shame, because I had forgotten that I had issued the call, okay? And I'm just keeping it real here as, as your pastor, that I am not a disciplined guy. I go in spurts. This is, the, this is the pattern in all of my life. But I'm keeping it for reals here this year. I want to do this with you. I want you to ask me about it. I'm going to ask you. Now, if you ask me about it, I'm going to ask you about it, right? Okay, so that, that, that's the deal. And there's a, there's a Bible uh, plan that I would commend to you. There's a lot out there. This is just one that, when I've done it, it's worked for me. It's the Discipleship Journal Bible Reading Plan. It takes four passages of Scripture a day, one from the Gospels, one from the Epistles, one from the Old Testament, one from the wisdom literature. And you do it five days a week, which I love, because when you miss a day, which invariably happens, it's not like you fall so far behind. That can be one of the most frustrating things, right? I'm so far behind. It's already January 22nd. Pastor, I'm just going to wait again until next January to try this again. Don't do that. Don't wait till next January. Pick up one of those discipleship journal Bible reading plans. They're right at the hub. We'll post them online and start, to, start tomorrow, January 23rd. And use this as your new year that when we come back, to do this state of the church thing next year, which we're not calling the state of the church, the mission of the church. You get what I'm saying? We can ask each other, how did it go? And if you committed to do it and you didn't do it, and I didn't do it, then it's too bad for us. We're out of here. No, that's not what happens, okay? There's grace and mercy and all those things, but 
come on, guys, we need to be accountable, right? Uh, Walt Disney famously said, what, you know, everybody needs a deadline. Everybody does. And so I want to commit, that, commit to that with you this year. A third thing, and this was mentioned, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but it was mentioned in the announcements. Guys, we have some amazing men's and women's Bible studies going on. We have a women's brunch coming up where we are going to launch out, you women, your study for the spring, which is going to be through the book of Ephesians. And starting in February, there's going to be a Tuesday night Bible study and a Wednesday morning Bible study. They're the same study, taught by the same people. They're, they're designed that if you work as a woman then, and if you can't get be here in the mornings, you've, you've got a Bible study slot then. But if you can be here on Wednesday morning, we have childcare available. But this is much more than just simply teaching. It is teaching, but it's also small groups around tables, praying for one another, applying the Word of God. And that is going to be starting up um, in February. Come to the Women's Brunch, ladies, this um, in a couple of weeks. Or I think it's this Saturday, right? Yeah, this Saturday. And hear more about this. Um, what an awesome opportunity to study all study the same book of the Bible together, the Word of God, uh, the book of Ephesians. Men, let me just tell you that, that um, I, I like to call our men's studies like old faithful, right? That's the geyser in Yellowstone, where it doesn't matter what time, time of the year, it's just, or what day you go, it's always on schedule. And for years, and now I can honestly say decades, when you come up here on a Friday morning, there are men studying the Word of God. Men, I know that some of you, it's a big step to go to a community group when you don't know anybody. And I just want you to know, as a fellow man, I get it. There is not, but our, our Bible, it's, it's another thing entirely to come into a group of men, humble guys who are just drinking coffee and studying the Word of God, and you can be a fly on a wall and just listen and study. And I commend those studies to you. You can find all of this stuff on the hub. All right, those are three personal things. Let me mention three things that I think are more corporate in nature, that I want you to be aware of, that I think fit into this theme of stirring ourselves up and deepening ourselves in the Word of God. And the first is this, we are um, hosting our second annual, now when you do it two years in a row, you can call it annual, right? Second annual Theology and Practice Weekend. Last year, we hosted Greg Allison, Southern Seminary Prof. He came and spoke on Roman Catholicism and Justification by Faith, and it ran concurrent with our Roman series. This year, we're inviting Dr. Scott Swain, who's the president of Reformed Theological Seminary in Orlando, to come and teach on the Trinity. And, and we have a nifty little tagline, Getting God Right, Trinitarian History, Heresy, and Hope. This is a, a Saturday morning little conference, mini conference seminar. We provide childcare, we provide food. This is an opportunity to come and really drill deep into the Word of God. Now, let me say this. Well, I think we ought to be doing these kind of things. And this is, by the way, going to be a joint venture of all three Four Oaks congregations. We're going to be hosting it right here. The reason this kind of thing is important is that most of us don't have much trouble gravitating to really super-duper practical resources. How to be a better parent, how to be a better husband, how to be a better father and a mother and a church member, and how to use your gifts. And, and guys, those are all important. But let's be honest, a lot of times we, we're just a little OD'd on all that. 
it's like the youth pastor who only teaches on dating. It's like, it's relevant, but we get it, right? Well, I think in the same way, there is something really important about the people of God dedicating themselves to a subject matter, a theological study matter, study matter. And I don't think there's anything more important than the doctrine of the knowledge of God. I want you to think about this. Somebody at our retreat mentioned this this weekend. But when you go to encourage someone or compliment someone, or someone encourages or compliments you, which, which encouragements or compliments mean the most to you? I mean, certainly if somebody says, hey, that, that's a great job, or you're such a great guy, or we really appreciate all the hard work, that, that, that's good. But how much more meaningful is it when you tell someone or someone tells you, you know, when our family had COVID and you came and brought meals to us and left them out on our doorstep for two weeks, that was just incredibly amazing. Thank you for serving us in that way. When my mother passed, you came and prayed with us and brought the community group around. And I mean, that, that has a ton of meaning, doesn't it? How, why would it be any different with God? When we come to God thanking him for who he is and what he has done, we want to be specific. That's what brings meaning. That's what moves a generic knowledge of God to a deep, personal, intimate knowledge of God. And to say all that to say, I really hope you are more grounded in your faith and theology of who God is by coming to this theology and practice conference. So there it is. That's, it's Saturday, February 4th. Okay, second thing. We're coming down the home stretch here. I want to talk about something that um, God's been doing sort of behind the scenes, but which is going to be much more public in the coming days. Um, and that has to do with our past opportunity to host a pastoral resident at each of our three congregations. Let me give you a little backdrop. When we, think, when we were with, with, with our elder teams this past uh, weekend, and we were just contemplating and thinking about what God has done, particularly over these last 10 years, of how God has birthed two additional congregations and how we have sent out elders and pastors and core group members and helped to plant churches and been a part of the Harbor Residency that, I mean, that was just a moment of real celebration for us. And let me just tell you, four oaks, so much of that relates to you. That when we moved as one church into this building in 2010, we came with a stated goal. We did not want to be gospel settlers. We did not want to be simply one more church on the northeast side of Tallahassee that's facing inward, that caters to its own needs, oblivious to everything going on around. We wanted to be gospel pioneers. We wanted to spread the gospel across Tallahassee, across this region, and wherever else he gave us opportunity. And so for us, multiplication was a huge value. And I just want you to know, Forrest Clark, because I think our congregation has uniquely borne that. Has unique Because multiplication is awesome for the people who are going, right? <laughs> for the people who are men in the home front, it can be hard. It can be tough. That's resources. That's people. That's leaders. But I think God is blessing it. And one of the things I think God is bringing back to us 
is a grant that our three congregations have been recently awarded by an organization called Made to Flourish. Made to Flourish is a, is a pastoral organization that does, does a lot of things, but one of the things it does, it funds full-time pastoral residencies. In other words, for, for, for men who are graduating from seminary, who have a call to ministry, who've been trained, but are still, let's just call it a little green, okay? Not gangrene, but a little green. And they are thinking through what their call is. And, and maybe they're not quite ready to, to move into a position of leading a church or planning a church. But what they really need is a season as part of a pastoral team. A season of part of a healthy church like this one to love on them and care for them while they also function as a pastor and resident for a two-year period, and then we send them off. And one of the great things about that opportunity is that we are making an investment in them, and they are making an investment in us. They are going to be fully functioning pastoral team members for those two years, preaching and teaching, doing, a whole, doing all the pastor stuff. But it gives us an opportunity, right, to have a stake in in, in sending men out of gospel propagation, of seeing God's word go forth. And so just a couple things you can pray for us. It's our goal to have this person on board for each of the congregations by July of 2023, which is our new fiscal ministry year. Um, this means this season is going to be one of recruiting and interviewing and doing all those sorts of things. And we just we want to we want to just keep that vision in front of us and and say what what a golden opportunity because made to flourish by the way is fully funding financially all of those residencies to the tune of about three hundred and fifty thousand dollars over a five year period and when we look at that we just say that is the blessing of God that is a great stewardship and I hope that that's as encouraging to you as it is to me last thing last little area we want to talk about. I want to talk about what happens here on a, on a Sunday. Because we are, one of the reasons we preach through books of the Bible versus what I would call topical preaching, which means we kind of choose topics randomly or semi-randomly from Scripture, is that if that's the way, if that was the, the consistent digest of, of teaching you received, what you're going to hear are things that I'm most comfortable with, Right? things that are in my wheelhouse, things that I've talked about before, things that I'm quote-unquote good at, you're not going to hear instinctively about the things that I struggle with that are hard, that are, that are complicated, that are controversial. But when we preach through books of the Bible, we really can't get around those areas, can we? And, and, and our practice for the history of the churches has been the point of the sermon is the point of the passage, that's, and we commit to preaching through books because that's the way that we make sure we're preaching the whole counsel of God. And so we are just starting this journey through the, the, the book of Matthew. And let me encourage you to do something. We are in about six or eight weeks are going to come to the most famous sermon ever preached. And so if somebody ever asks you, who's your favorite preacher? Who's the best preacher you've ever encountered? There's one correct answer. What is it? Jesus, yeah, congratulations. Or, or John Piper, I can't remember which one, but one of those, okay. He would not like that if he were here. Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount, the most famous passage uh, sermon ever preached. And I'm gonna, we're going to be spending a number of weeks, obviously, in that amazing um, three chapters, Matthew 5 through 7. 
I encourage you, even as you're reading at a high level the Word of God, reading it, you know, various portions of God's Word through the year, that you take this season to drill deep into a specific section. There's no better section to do that with than the Sermon on the Mount. There is a book that I'm, I'm recommending to you. It's one we gave all of our pastors and elders this past week. It's called The Sermon on the Mount and Human Flourishing by Jonathan Pennington. He's a, he's a pastor in our Harbor Network, but he's also a PhD at Southern Seminary, a professor there. This is the best book on the Sermon on the Mount that I've ever read, okay? Um, although there's many good ones. This, I think, is, is particularly good. We have it out on the resource table. I encourage you to, to, to buy one of those, pick one of those up, and begin to prepare your hearts for that season. Begin to really meditate and spend time, supplement this with the pastoral devotionals, okay? What a great combination to really help you, equip you to study the Word of God for yourself. The second book that I'm going to recommend to you, second resource, is one that the elders and pastors have been reading over this past year called The Lord's Supper, Understanding Four Views on the Lord's Supper. And one of the things that we have grown convicted of is that we, and by we I mean me, have not done the greatest job in teaching and preaching and, and communicating the depth of theology behind the Lord's Supper, why we do it weekly, why, why it's so important, what's happening here. Um, those of you who are from a liturgical background, um, where you did this every week growing up, it's not that, maybe not that strange, but maybe you don't even know why you did it or why we do it. Or maybe you're from more of a, a Bible church background and, and, and communion was only something that you did like once a quarter. And you come here and you're like, what, what are you guys doing? Y'all are cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs doing this every Sunday. What, what's happening here? This is going to be a season where I want to more strategically, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, be communicating in an in-depth way why this is so vital, why this is a means of God's grace for us, why the early church did this whenever they gathered, to remind ourselves what is, what is happening? Is this just ritual? Is it just tradition? Or is this actually something Jesus commanded us to do? But if you want a sort of an inside side journey into some of the things that we've been wrestling with as elders and pastors, this is also a great book. And again, you can, you can check this out at the Resource Center. Last thing, I promise. And by last thing, I mean there's three more things. But I